Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to another live edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show. You are tuned in to the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North, Monday, May 30th, 2022. Moments ago, Justin Trudeau and a team of cabinet ministers, Bill Blair, Marco Mendicino, David Lametti, Marcy Ian, I think a couple of others as well, they just kind of loaded them all up into the clown car and drove to the press conference room. I think in West Block, it looks like, from the uh, photos I have in front of me here, and have announced a national freeze on handgun ownership. So it will no longer be legal, uh, assuming this passes, which of course it will because they've got the NDP support, to buy, sell, or import handguns in Canada. So it sounds like what they're doing is trying to expand this uh, massive assault weapons or so-called assault weapons ban that they put in place uh, two years ago on AR-15s and Mini-14s and stuff like that. It sounds like they're trying to do it on handguns. Now, this is significantly ramping up what they tried to do in the previous parliament on handguns, which was simply let municipalities make their own thing. So now we have Justin Trudeau further eroding legal gun ownership. The details are still coming in. We'll certainly revisit that later in the show as we have a bit more information. And you better believe I'm going to be doing a full show on it tomorrow. So stay tuned for that. But I, I wanted to talk about some other news here in the Freedom Convoy front, which uh, has not gone away despite how, I mean, they may have cleared the trucks away, but the story very much persists. And if you follow a uh, great substack led by Benjamin Dichter, who was the spokesperson for the convoy, you will have seen this morning that he's received something of an apology from Scotiabank, which says here, and I'm, I'm going to quote it, and we can put the email up on the screen. We understand you raised a concern regarding your personal accounts having a hold placed on them. Please accept our sincere apologies for the frustration and inconvenience this situation may have caused, and thank you for your patience while we prepared our response. This is in response to an email he sent on February 20th, and this reply, as you see there, comes from the office of the president. And one thing that I, I really want to point out here is that there still are significant questions, significant questions about how this whole thing came about, about whose accounts got frozen, who made the call, who was aware of it. Joining me now is Benjamin Dichter himself. Uh, ben, good to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on today. It's good to talk to you. How are you? Now, let me ask you first off here. You, you've said in this piece on your Substack that Mark Petrone wrote, Bank apologizes. I read this, and I'm not sure if this is an apology or if this is like a we're sorry you feel that way, non-apology apology. But do you feel, as a Scotiabank customer, sufficiently apologized to? I think it's a step in the right direction at the very least. Yes, it's an apology for my frustration. Um, but there's the other side of me that's thinking, is this the type of uh, over-regulation that the financial sector has been crowing about for, for decades. And it's now gone completely amok to the point that there's just now arbitrary uh, suspensions and freezing of people's accounts when the government decides. So maybe this is a good opportunity for the financial sector to fight back and say, hey, you know, we're always crying about regulation. This is why. This is what it leads to. So I think it's a step in the right direction. And I know a lot of people are angry and oh you should sue so scotia bank and whatever but the other the other side of it i'm like no this i think this is progress and i think you're going to start to see a divide 
from the other side, much like that parliamentary hearing where everybody's pointing at each other and saying it wasn't me. Yeah, I mean, this is like what's happening right now with the whole airport situation in Canada, where you've got the G the Greater Toronto Airport Authority blaming CATSA, which is blaming the CBSA, which is blaming the government, which is blaming the airline. I mean, it, it's all of this. And, and ultimately, you lose sight of the fact that there's something wrong that needs to be addressed here. And, and the bank account freezes are a great example of that. I, I know there was one document that was filed in court that showed police had handed over information to banks that was actually based on media reports. One in particular that showed up in a, in the court doc documents was he looked at, I think it was like a CTV or a global piece that was the who's who of the convoy. And they just kind of copied and pasted all the names that CTV or global, whichever it was, wrote and, and sent it on to the RCMP, which sent it on to the banks. The way the emergencies orders were worded, the banks didn't have to do it. They were given the power to do it. And we still don't know if they were being told by the government, you better do this. Yeah, I mean, I think you're seeing the increasing laziness of government, despite it getting larger and larger. And a perfect example, the uh, topic you just opened up with, the handguns and the AR-15s. If you remember correctly, one of the, the types of weaponry they banned was AR-15.com. Everything is just now copy and paste, right? It's the same thing with, with this scenario with the banking. And I think the, what I want to know, and I think what we're all very curious about, is at some level, somewhere, some politician or bureaucrat made the decision to press the go button. Who is that person? What is their name? Because it's time for the faceless bureaucracy, that era, to end. We need names of people specifically who they were. And then we can ask them why they did it. And once you get that person in the crosshairs, you know how they are. <laughs> they'll, they'll crow like anybody else just to get the pressure off, and then we'll get somewhere. I want to just, again, to prompt our audience here, I want to put that email we had back up on the screen here from the Scotiabank Ombudsman slash Customer Complaints Appeals Office. And I, by the way, I love the line at the bottom, sincerely, Office of the President. So you don't even get the courtesy of knowing who supposedly sent you this letter here. But they say they hope it has clarified the matter for you. And, and nothing has really been, in the grand scheme of things, clarified. And, and I go back to that emergency order that the government gave authorizing this. In indemnifying the banks against liability. So giving them the legal cover to do whatever they want, even if they get it wrong, or even if you as a customer would say to them, hey, you violated your, your agreement with me. So the banks are in a kind of good spot here as far as their legal coverage. I mean, PR coverage is a bit of a different matter. No, I agree. I agree. But at the same time, and maybe I'm wrong in my worldview, uh, I am somewhat sympathetic because I understand the constraints that banks are under. Uh, I don't believe that the bank went out of their way on their own accord, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but I would find it hard to believe that with all the problems that banks have right now, the fact that, you know, with fractional reserve lending and, you know, uh, increased debt loads and all that sort of stuff, that they're going to go out of their way just out of, I don't know, spite? that they're going to start, uh, oh, let's find our customers who are involved in the most peaceful protest in Canadian history, and let's cause a potential PR disaster. And the other thing to notice is, or the other thing to note is, at least Scotiabank responded. My bank, main bank, TD, didn't even bother to respond to my question. So I give them credit for that. Now, uh, the quality of their response, yeah, it's a step in the right direction. I'd like to I'd like to see them to be more honest and forthwith 
about what sort of pressures they were put under uh, by the government. I know we, we talked about this previously, Benjamin, but just to bring people up to speed, what was it that happened when the freeze went into place as it pertained to you? Um, it was interesting. I had arrived at a friend's house because uh, for a variety of different reasons, my lawyers, who you know, uh, suggested that I needed to leave and Tamara, it was, it was, everything was in flux. And I arrived at a friend's house who was well outside the, the Ottawa area, which is basically what the, the police had required of, of all of us. And I went to, you know, as a favor to order food. You know, you go to somebody's place, you're going to stay there for a couple of days, let me buy dinner. And boom, my credit card was denied. And said, you know, check your balance, did it two or three times. And I remembered, wait, there's talk about freezing of accounts. Went to my online banking, actually went to my corporate bank account. And my entire banking history was erased. As though I had never done a transaction from those accounts ever. There was still a balance there. But my bookkeeper actually called me and said, what's going on with the banks? I can't even reconcile uh, your banking right now. I said, eh, a little bit of difficulty going on right now. Turn on the news. And then, it, and again, as I tried to tell people over and over again, uh, as, I, you know, as I did on, when, I was, when I spoke at the Bitcoin conference in Miami, it wasn't just my bank account. It was all my bank accounts, business bank accounts, credit cards not affiliated with my main bank lines of credit, absolutely everything. And, and, and like you just said, different institutions as well. All different institutions. Wow. And ironically, you know, the only thing I could transact in if I, if I wanted to would have been Bitcoin, which became the other story on uh, those truckers who actually received donations. That was the only way they got them. But yeah, technically, uh, I couldn't. And remember, I was sitting there with a broken ankle. Uh, I was not well. I couldn't buy food. I couldn't buy medicine because my government was trying to starve me. And I think we're starting to encroach on this territory uh, where in the modern age, if a government tries to target its people in this manner, is that a human rights violation in the modern era? And I think that's something to consider. And that's something that should be discussed on Parliament Hill at some point. And, and how long was, were your accounts frozen for? If I remember correctly, it was seven or eight days. As soon as the Emergency Measures Act was dropped, uh, the, the next day I was able to transit by two o'clock in the afternoon. So, so if you were someone that didn't have access to cash or crypto or friends, I mean, you would have been screwed. That's right. That's right. It was the government trying to do, you know, what we did in the Middle Ages of trying to banish people from society, throw them to the wolves so they can starve themselves. It was the most aggressive thing I could ever see I can't even imagine from a Western government, but that's where we are now. Uh, one part of the story I, I haven't heard much about, and, and you may have, because obviously you've lived this in a way that, that I haven't. Uh, the the meetings that C, uh, Christian Freeland had the weekend before they announced the Emergencies Act was CEOs of banks. You know, were they about consulting and, and asking the banks, what do you guys want? Or was it, hey, this is what we're going to do? Uh, have we heard anything definitive about what those talks entailed? Absolutely nothing, but I do hope that the, the next government that forms in, uh, in Canada, if that happens to be Pierre Paul or whoever, that they will bring this uh, to a committee, an investigation, uh, a parliamentary inquiry, a royal commission, whatever you want to call it, so they can investigate it. And as well, at the same time, there's a whole bunch of us right now that have been talking for some time 
that there may be, we may need to go down the direction of having a class action lawsuit just to go through the process of discovery so they'll be forced to finally answer questions under oath. Yeah, I, I, in all honesty, I mean, and, and I don't want to sell short the claim that you would have for, for recompense from the government here, but I, I think that the transparency would be the best remedy on something like this. And you know what? With any honest government, transparency is a benefit to them as well, because then they can say, well, listen, we made these decisions. Maybe they were the wrong decisions, but we made them for this reason. But this kabuki theater that we're in right now, where everything's going to be hidden away, and guess what he says? No, it was him. No, it was me. It's like a bunch of five-year-olds. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, and, and we don't know if any of this will come out, if the government will let it come out in this uh, public inquiry that they've launched, because they're still being very coy about, I mean, even allowing cabinet information to be revealed. No, I shouldn't say coy. They're, they're explicitly saying they won't. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? Uh, we have... Uh, all the time in the world, because, you know, we're going back to our regular lives. They eat, live, eat, and breathe politics. We don't. So this is a perfect example. This email came to me on March 3rd. I was sitting on it. And you know why I was sitting on it? I was waiting to see the parliamentary inquiry. I knew they would do something, and I knew they would all try to blame each other. And that's exactly what's happened. So uh, the email, and again, people can head on over to uh, bjdictor.substack.com and read it for themselves. Uh, something of an apology. Again, I, I, I hold a little bit more uh, skepticism towards the apology th than you do, but uh, let's hope that your optimism will pan out and this is the, the start of something. Yeah, I'm trying to take the same approach we did with the Freedom Convoy. We all got to, at some point, stop yelling at each other and try to come together a little bit. And I'm trying to give the financial sector, a little olive branch and say, hey, listen, guys, uh, you guys need freedom, too. You need freedom to transact, to do your businesses and whatever. And this may be an opportunity for you guys just to uh, come out and say, well, this is unfortunately, these are the pressures that we were under uh, due to, uh, you know, regulatory uh, constraints. Or maybe Christopher Friedland telling us this is what you're going to do. Wouldn't that be fascinating to find out exactly when, what went on behind closed doors in those meetings? Benjamin Dichter, spokesperson for the Freedom Convoy, and you can check out his Substack now. Ben, good to talk to you as always. Thanks for coming on today. Likewise, thank you, and thanks for all the hard work you do. Oh, it's very kind of you, sir. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I am following this. And, and one thing that I, I think is very clear is that when the trucks got cleared out, that wasn't the end of the story. And there's going to be, I think, a fair bit more to come of this in the uh, weeks and months to come. I'm uh, going to pivot to Ontario politics in just a moment here. But I, I want to go back. If you're just tuning in, I, I'm not ignoring the announcement that is taking place on firearms right now. We've been waiting for the information to come out. And we are going to have a, a full show on this tomorrow. But for First, I, I want to play a clip from this press conference of, of Justin Trudeau announcing what it is the government is proposing to do here. We're introducing legislation to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. What this means is that it will no longer be possible to buy, sell, transfer, or import handguns anywhere in Canada. In other words, we're capping the market for handguns. One of the things I have to point out here contextually to just state the obvious is that the Liberal government holds these things 
until they have a news story that justifies putting them forward. This is what they did on their big ban in 2020 of a bunch of uh, semi-automatic rifles. They waited until uh, that horrible uh, shooting spree in Nova Scotia. It's no secret, no coincidence, and no surprise that this is coming in the wake of an American tragedy that has absolutely nothing to do with Canada or Canadian gun laws. So we'll, uh, we'll get the updates on that and do a full show on that tomorrow. But we have a lot happening this week. Ontarians go to the polls for the provincial election on Thursday. Of course, advance polls were uh, already taking place, so a lot of Ontarians have already voted. But still, I, I think it's important to talk about the themes that are coming out in this as Doug Ford and the Progressive Conservative Party seeks re-election. New Blue leader Jim Carajalios joins me back on the program here. Uh, Jim, we talked uh, a little while ago, but I, I wanted to drill in to the policy aspect here. Uh, tell me about the new blueprint. What is this? Well, thanks for remembering the name of it, Andrew. And uh, we're really happy with the new blueprint. It's the uh, most important topics going into this election for the new blue party and our candidates uh, presented in six bullets. In addition to the COVID uh, related legislation that we've been pushing back on since Belinda voted against Doug Ford's lockdown bill, Bill 195. And we're really, really proud of it. I'm happy to go over some of the key highlights for you. But of course, we've been talking since last summer um about um banning the use of vaccine passports not just making them optional in the public or private sector but banning them we were i was there uh, i saw you in ottawa at the trucker convoy talking about restitution for uh, some of those truckers who had their businesses 39 of them had their businesses shut down without due process and for some of the churches who had their doors shut and their keys taken from them and couldn't access their facility but we knew that the PCs were going to run away from their COVID record and make it sound like they had nothing to do with it or wasn't their fault in the last two years. And so we've been very diligent to make sure that we're talking about fiscal, social and democratic issues. We're the only party out there talking about scrapping the per vote subsidy for the uh, establishment political parties that Doug Ford brought back and increased by 40 percent over 100 million dollars in 10 years has gone to the PCs, the Liberals and the NDP. We're talking about canceling the Toronto Stars online gambling license. And we need one provincial party that fights for free press. And we're talking about bringing down electricity rates by getting rid of the wind turbines. And I'm happy to get into that some more with you because it's a complicated file. And of course, we all remember Belinda was the only MPP to vote against critical race theory in Bill 67. And we um, uh, launched that stopwoke.ca petition that, petition that Belinda read on the last day of the legislature. And uh, in our platform, the new blueprint is getting rid of critical race theory in our schools and offering tax credits for our, those parents who've chosen alternatives in education. Let me go back to what you said at the beginning there, Jim, which is preventing the government from being able to do some of the horrific things they've done in the name of public health and COVID with vaccine passports and mandates and all of that. I mean, the federal government has a constitution which theoretically, and I mean, there, there's a big debate we could have about the efficacy of the courts here, but theoretically constrains future government's actions. If you were to get in and you were to pass this, what's to stop a government from basically doing what the Doug Ford government did, which is ripping up the law and ripping up all of this and saying we're, we're doing it anyway. I mean, a government that can impose a restriction on itself could also remove that restriction when it was expedient to do so, couldn't it? And it's kind of a similar qu question on a variety of policies, even in Doug Ford's industrial carbon tax that we're talking about that's part of the new blueprint. But I've always said that these are not just legal questions, these are political questions. And I remember, Andrew, when I was uh, 
in law school in Ottawa. I hope the uh, uh, viewers forgive me for going to law school. Belinda did when she met me. But um, I remember some of the judges that we had met admitted that when they make some of these charter decisions or constitutional decisions, they do look at public sentiment and they do look at what uh, the debates are in the legislature. So it's not just a legal answer and uh, lawsuits uh, are necessary in advocacy just as are protests and rallies and petitions. But the other piece is having a political party fighting to change legislation and pushing back when legislation is changed in the future. So we saw the government throw away uh, a lot of the um, what we thought were constitutionally protected rights and freedoms. And we saw Doug Ford take emergency powers that we uh, traditionally thought were only for a period of time of uh, under a month and expand it to two years. And you're right, a future government can uh, uh, do that under the current uh, political climate that we have here. But we need a political party to say it's not enough to just you know, walk away and say vaccine passports are going to be optional now. We need government created this problem. We need the pushback to be government is going to solve this problem. And it starts with advocacy from the new blue party saying we're going to ban uh, vaccine passports, public or private sector. And I think that's an important step in ensuring that future governments know not to try uh, this again. The pessimism that I had through a, a lot of the pandemic came from the fact that it seemed like a lot of Ontarians welcomed restrictions. A lot of Ontarians welcomed vaccine passports. I mean, how do you square what you're proposing with what I fear was a, at times in the pandemic a, a democratic will for some of these things? Well, I think in the early going, um, there was a lot of fear that came over. And um, even when Belinda voted against Bill 195, we saw a lot of um, politicians uh, vote in favor of it, who later cheating. And so, uh, sure, the public was afraid. And part of the problem, I think, is that the government was, I, I've said this publicly, it's nefarious that St. Joe's and Hamilton had early treatment for COVID, and it wasn't readily being promoted and expanded, uh, whether it's an, any uh, monoclonal antibodies or other early treatments, it wasn't expanded across Ontario. So the public's fear was there's no treatment for this. Nothing can be done. And uh, that gave the government some early leeway. But if you look now, the PCs have been running away from their record and they're scaring the public about these types of mandates and lockdowns, saying that the NDP might do exactly what Doug Ford did a few times. So I think it's important with advocacy uh, the public responds and the public uh, mood may shift depending on more information that comes out. And so maybe in the beginning there was skepticism, but I think largely the more people find out about uh, treatments for COVID and the studies that have come out and in discussion that the lockdowns did nothing to curb the spread. And there was no such thing as COVID zero. And the same with the vaccine passports. Uh, I think the public comes around. And I would also remind people on this that the government and their public health advisors have not ruled uh, ruled out the return of these things. I mean, it's all well and good during an election to see everyone mask-free, vaccine passport-free. But uh, Kieran Moore has gotten up there and said, you know, once winter comes around, who knows what's going to happen? And we've got a—that's why the New Blue Party is just getting started on June 2nd. It's no conclusion. We need a political party in every corner of this province, Andrew— that when the establishment parties, and we know, it's not even if, we know that they're not going to stick to their commitments, and especially the Ford PCs, we're going to be there, the new blue party outside the legislature, hopefully inside the legislature, 
to keep advocating and keep pushing. And one of the things that COVID brought up in the last two years, you'll, you'll know this, Andrew, that the power that some of the local bureaucrats have in the name of public health. So you can have specific yeah. regions just declaring without any due process, without any debate in the legislature, they're going to shut down businesses. And part of the new blueprint is doing a comprehensive review of what those um, um, legal powers are of local bureaucrats in the name of public health. They have no idea what it's like to operate a church or worship or uh, run a small business. They shouldn't have that power in many instances to shut down small businesses and tell people how many people they can have over for Christmas and Thanksgiving. Yeah, I mean, there was a time not that long ago, I guess two years and a bit, where the public health officer was the one telling you about getting your malaria shot before you go to Africa, teaching people about the importance of safe sex and, uh, you know, making sure that there were uh, drug overdose responses available. I mean, these things that most people associate with public health. The amount of power that we've learned was always there, but has only more recently been deployed, is is shocking to people. And, and I guess the, the question is, how big of an overhaul do we need to rein that in we need a comprehensive overview of of the laws and the regulations on the books for the local bureaucrats in addition to repealing all of the laws that uh, doug ford put in under the guise of uh, you know lockdown mandate related legislation including bill 100 um, that he put in near the end of the legislative sitting that allows him to go after people without due process and shut down businesses it's got to be a comprehensive overview of the last two years of covid lockdown uh, related legislation and mandate related legislation and proactive legislation because of the problem the PCs have created in many instances where Doug Ford is now saying it's an option for people or facility operators whether they want to use the COVID vaccine passport but a few months ago when Belinda was standing in the legislature challenging them on it whether it was a liberal private members bill or or otherwise the PCs were advocating for it publicly and in the legislature telling uh, uh, facility operators to uh, impose COVID vaccine passports and the nurses that were terminated from their jobs. It's only increased the backlog of procedures. The new blueprint calls for rehiring those nurses. So there's a lot of work to do, but it starts with ensuring that the discussion continues and the advocacy in the right direction continues. And that's what the new Blue Party of Ontario was started for two years ago. And we're just getting started on June 2nd. You've gone in the uh, new blueprint back to basics on, I think, conservative fiscal policy here, a, a reduction in the HST from 13% to 10%. So that's a, a pretty significant reduction in, in the provincial portion of that. I, I'm not even going to pretend that I'm opposed to that. I, I think that's wonderful. I'd say bring it on. How would you pay for it, though? Uh, the payment's got to be through economic growth. I mean, conservatives in the past, Andrew, would say, we don't have a spending problem. We have a revenue problem. Well, under 20 years of liberal and PC governments, we have a spending problem and we have a revenue problem because the economy is growing at over 1%. And we all know that the more you, you increase taxation, the economy is not going to pick up. And we saw it with Doug Ford put in an industrial carbon tax. That's part of the same tax relief we're promising in the new blueprint. And every time you add one of these taxes, you're just slowing down the economy. Our new blueprint has the best plan to get the economy going again. It starts with reducing electricity rates by taking down and decommissioning those wind turbines and reducing the HST will also have an economic impact. And that's how we're going to pay for um, tax relief and for uh, social services going forward. And social services are in trouble because if we keep growing this economy at a fraction of what our spending increases, um, we're going to have a big problem. But I'll say one more thing, Andrew. I said this to someone who interviewed me the other day from a, a, a publication. When 
it's time for the PCs or the Liberals to spend money, like Doug Ford just did. He spent more money in the last four years than any government. He's run greater deficits, excluding COVID spending, than any government in the history of Ontario. It's amazing that the establishment press that never says, how are you going to pay for that? It's just like it's a bottomless pit of money when it comes to spending, when it comes to $6.9 billion to try to keep hydro rates down. But when it comes to tax relief, the left is all over the place and the establishment media are screaming, you can't pay for it. Well, the best way to to uh, afford tax relief is by doing a tax relief and getting the economy going. Are there any big significant expenditures that you see? I mean, obviously you're not in there and, and you don't have access to the full books in the sense that you would if you were the, the premier, but are there things going into it that you know you could you could cut that are big ticket items or that you would at least look at for cuts? Well, one of the ways uh, we um, reduce spending is through the alternative schooling tax credit and other uh, wasteful spending like the $100 million a year that Doug Ford's been doing um, uh, for the political parties over the last 10 years. He didn't do the $100 million, but the establishment party set it in, in motion. But the other big spending, $6.9 billion a year of taxpayer money being used to artificially deflate hydro rates when the solution is to take down the wind turbines. And we just saw him for two months um, make promises of the in, in the billions, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of um, uh, green energy uh, electric vehicle subsidies, and, and I hate using the term green energy because it's not. It's not green energy. Um, so right there with his commitments that he's promised, uh, totally opposed to the electric vehicle subsidies, corporate welfare going to create these industries that are entirely going to be dependent on government funding. And the minute the government can't afford to fund them anymore, those industries will collapse. So there's a lot of wasteful spending that the Ford PCs have continued in continuing the McGinty win legacy and trying to create a provincial paradigm here in Ontario of whatever Justin Trudeau wants federally. Things like accountability are not or should not be left-right issues. Uh, the COVID handling, I've seen a lot of criticism towards uh, what Doug Ford's done here from the left and from the right, and, and I think increasingly from people that aren't even political or aren't even on the political spectrum. So let me ask how, how you envision your party fitting into the political landscape here. Are you trying to be an alternative for conservative voters, or do you actually see something in here that's going to attract votes from uh, former liberal voters, NDP voters, green voters? and, and non-voters? Uh, one of the um, biggest um, components of our supporters are people who have stopped voting for a long time. Uh, we get it uh, in Kitchener, Conestoga, and Cambridge, and across Ontario, people who, said, who have said they gave up on the establishment parties because they're all the same. And whether it's we are talking about issues that um, voters previously would have said, you know, I consider that a right-of-center issue or they thought that that was not a right of center issue and they're coming around and 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 realizing that's actually a good solution or whether we're talking about the things that, uh, on accountability and democratic reform and not wasting money that a lot of voters used to think was common amongst all the parties for example the idea that you're subsidizing a political party for their operations i don't think there's a voter out there on the left or the right that thinks that's a good idea, or very few at least. The idea that you know the PCs would not allow Belinda's private members bill to pass in 2019, and they parked it at a committee. I think we, uh, I think you froze there. Do we still have Jim? So uh, in Ontario's history, there's never been a law against voter fraud in internal party elections, and Belinda proposed that private members bill, and she got 
unanimous support from all the parties in the legislature because the Greens, the Liberals, the NDP, they all know that their voters wouldn't be in favor of voter fraud. But the Doug Ford PCs just parked at a committee, never allowed that private member's bill to become law. I mean, what kind of party, Andrew, wouldn't pass into law a bill against voter fraud in internal party elections? And a lot of voters in Ontario, whether it's Cambridge or otherwise, they, ha they, they had no idea that there are no laws on the books against voter fraud taking place in a leadership, in a nomination, at a party convention. And of course, we the, the other promise we've made is to scrap the Toronto Star's online gambling license. And Andrew, you're, you're one of the best read on this stuff. You'll see a lot of left-leaning commentators writing articles on this stuff saying this is a terrible idea to mix online gambling revenues with print media is a terrible idea. And uh, there's other local issues that we've been fighting for, like Belinda's been standing up against a drug injection site in Cambridge, and uh, voters that traditionally may have voted on the left or the right or never voted um, are, are, are coming around and saying, I agree with that. So we are talking about the things that the establishment parties and, other, and others in the political process are not talking about, and that's where we've been building our support for the last two years, and even before that, since we started, I started the Axe of Carbon Tax campaign. I know about uh, 15 years ago, Ontarians voted in a referendum on electoral reform, on, on introducing mixed-member proportional representation, which would have allowed uh, for some proportional representation in the legislature, which uh, would have allowed for newer parties and upstart parties to have a bit more of a direct path in. Is that something you'd support or you have a, a position on as leader of New Blue, electoral reform? It's not in the new blueprint. It's something that we're always looking at ways to strengthen our democracy. But in the immediate future, we're fighting for um, a cleanup of the internal party uh, process. So uh, I think that's the immediate thing that needs fixing and tinkering with the general election system is kind of, you know, jumping a few steps ahead. Uh, federally, you remember in 2005, Stephen Harper brought forward the Accountability Act. And he made a, a clear line between lobbyists getting involved in internal party politics. Provincially, we've seen those same guys, like Doug Ford's campaign manager, taking advantage of the fact that in Ontario, there are not as strong laws against that. And we've seen lobbyists or reported lobbyists on the PC side jumping on caucus calls and telling caucus how they should be voting. And the entire internal party system in Ontario politics has is totally broken not just damaged a bit where it's entirely driven by the leader and whoever the gang in the back is so the focus has to be on cleaning up the internal party system first i think before we start tinkering with how the general election model works now i mean just one last question jim if that happened is a party like the new blue needed if if the major parties or the established parties are are subject to the rules that you've proposed well, that's just one element of it, but the New Blue Party of Ontario, I worked really hard and Belinda worked really hard and there were thousands of others that really worked very, very hard for many years to influence the Ontario PC Party. Work from the inside is what they said, to push for the solutions that the establishment parties don't want to talk about. And June 2nd is just a starting point for us. We're not going away. We've balanced the narrative, we've changed the course, and we've challenged the left for the last few years, and we're going to continue to do that. Jim Carajalios, leader of the New Blue Party. I know it's a big week with the election coming up Thursday, so thanks very much for joining me again. Thanks, Andrew.
All right, thank you. Uh, and I know that last time uh, we talked to uh, Jim Carajalios, we had people, and also uh, Derek Sloan, leader of the Ontario Party, who will be here tomorrow. We had people saying, why are you focused so much on Ontario? And I, I had to say, no, no, no. I focused on Alberta. I focused on BC. I, fo- I haven't done as much on the Maritimes, but uh, we focus on the conservative movement more broadly. And we do that right now because there's an election in Ontario. And I have invited Doug Ford on the show. I, I've invited him numerous times through the pandemic and during the election, and they have thus far not wanted to. And it's quite unfortunate. I I ran in 2018 as a PC candidate. I know Doug Ford personally. I've been very critical of his handling of the pandemic. I'm politically neutral in this election, but I I don't hide my my history and my my past connection with that party. Uh, But again, they haven't wanted to talk, which I I think has been a great shame, but it also speaks volumes about where that party's priorities are as far as the the audience and and the voter base it's trying to uh, cultivate. So uh, we are going to talk tomorrow to Ontario Party leader Derek Sloan. We're focusing on policy here with just a couple days to go until the election. But I do want to speak just for a couple of moments again about this announcement the Liberals made. And I I want to just, if you're just tuning in, play that clip of Justin Trudeau again, laying out what it is his government's doing. We're introducing legislation to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. What this means is that it will no longer be possible to buy, sell, transfer, or import handguns anywhere in Canada. In other words, we're capping the market for handguns. Again, it's so shameful, so shameful how they are looping in something that has nothing to do with Canada, this American tragedy, and making this about somehow Canadian gun control and Canadian handgun ownership which most people in this country don't understand. Gun owners in this country are a minority, so politically it's a very easy group to beat up on. But it is embarrassing and shameful and pathetic that the federal government is introducing firearms legislation that is not needed to answer a problem that does not exist because lawful handgun ownership in this country is a non-existent threat to public safety. People are going to be shocked. I mean, they won't probably won't pay attention to it because the media won't cover it, but people are going to be shocked in three, four, five, six years' time when this law is on the books and they wonder why gang shootings in Toronto and Surrey and Montreal and Vancouver haven't gone down at all. And they're like, but, but, but wait, I, I thought the government banned handguns. And someone will have to say, no, 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 they only ban legal handguns, not the ones that criminals are using. What's wrong with you? You thought we were going after those guns? No, not at all. The borders are the problem, not the legal gun stores. Not me, not you if you're a registered possession and acquisition license holder. But we are going to do a a full show on this tomorrow. Like I said, the timing just came where we couldn't delve into it in as much detail today, but that is coming up on tomorrow's show, which will also be live. And we'll have a a great guest for you to break that down. I just got, I don't want to announce it because I haven't invited them yet. So uh, that'll be tomorrow though. In the meantime, I want to thank all of you for tuning in to the program today. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show, the Andrew Lawton Show live on True North. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.